A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Second Age Podcast. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. And I'm John. This is Chapter 6, The Aftermath. In this episode, we have three segments. A discussion of Tolkien's relationship with his son, Christopher. A discussion of the themes of divine intervention and free will. And a deep dive into the aftermath of the war and the beginning of the Third Age. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to secondageatbaldmove.com. And we'll get to those questions on the final episode, which will be a Q&A. If you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join us on the Bald Move Discord. Link in the description below and over at baldmove.com. And be sure to get all the Bald Move and Lorehounds coverage of Rings of Power by subscribing to the Dug Too Deep podcast feed. We're going to be releasing exclusive content on this feed, so you don't want to miss out. Click on the link in the show notes or search for Dug Too Deep in your podcast application of choice. So, John, let's get started with a discussion of Tolkien's son, Christopher, for whom we have much to be grateful for from something like that. Yeah, so just to preface here, when we say Tolkien, we're going to be referring to the writer. When we say Christopher, we'll be talking about his son. So just to avoid any confusion, they both have the same last name. That's the distinction that we're making here. That sounds helpful. Yeah. So starting with his early life. Christopher was born in Leeds on November 21st, 1924. He was the third of four Tolkien children. And uh, I, I guess maybe just a quick interjection here of the other th- of his siblings. There was uh, John Francis, who was the first, who was born in 17 and died in 2003. There's Michael Hillary, who uh, was born in 1920 and passed away in 1984. And then Christopher John, who uh, was born in 24, as you said, and then recently passed away in 2020. And then last was Priscilla Ann, who was born in 1929, and she passed away at the beginning uh, of this year in February of 2022. Mm. Yeah, I remember that. Tolkien uh, certainly had quite a few children. (laughs) Yeah, and it sounds, by all accounts, like a very close and, and happy family, I would guess. Yeah, I think he was close with all of his children, but especially Christopher. Uh, I think part of that is Christopher, as a child, had this mysterious heart condition. They never figured out what it was exactly, but it required him to stay home and lay on his back for many months. And his father was spending a ton of time with him at this point. 
Okay. Tolkien described his son in his diary as a nervy, irritable, cross-grained, self-tormenting, cheeky person. Yet there is something intensely lovable about him, to me at any rate, from the very similarity between us. I think I think Tolkien might be describing himself there. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of uh, self-critique there. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But you can see how much he sort of adores his son, you know, for yeah. all his faults. Right. And so Tolkien and his son would sit by the fire, and Christopher would sit listening to his father's stories for so many evenings, and especially the stories that became the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Christopher was very much a part of his father's work, too, because when Tolkien became frustrated by the fact that he couldn't make this good-looking map, he could only make rough sketches, uh, Christopher drew the maps of Middle-earth, the the maps that you see in the Lord of the Rings books. Really? Oh, so the actual map? Wow, that's cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah, for some reason, he had this affinity for making maps for cartography. They're great maps. I remember looking at them myself when I was young, and... and, uh... I, the the balance of detail versus the lack of detail was just kind of perfect. It left you enough imaginative space to fill in the details. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I amazing. think that's right. Yeah. So, once Christopher gets a little older, it's World War II, and Tolkien's working on the Fellowship of the Ring, or what would become that, since he didn't really want to split it up. But his son gets drafted into the war, and is sent to join the Royal Air Force and trained to be a fighter pilot in South Africa. This was kind of an interesting point because his father thought that air combat was immoral. Immoral. Right, yeah. He, <laughs> okay. You know, Tolkien, this naturalist, he's like, you know, back in my day, we just had <laughs> machine guns. We didn't right. have air combat. <laughs> That's hilarious. Not really, but in a weird way. Anyway, yeah. moving on. <laughs> yeah, but even even with these moral qualms, Tolkien was writing his son and keeping him updated on the progress of the Lord of the Rings. He's uh, writing him during the writing of the Two Towers and saying, I'm just so exhausted from writing this much. Will I ever recover from this? There's echoes there of the TCBS. I think so. In terms of, you know, uh, of having a a sounding board and and having someone to critique your work and give you honest feedback. Um, It seems like that kind of relationship is uh, uh, Tolkien is extending that to Christopher. Yeah, I think that he was very much a partner in this work after a certain point, especially as yeah. he got older. Interesting. Okay. So during the war, Tolkien writes a letter to Christopher and says, we're attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring, and the war is not over, and the one that is, or part of it, has largely been lost. But it is, of course, wrong to fall into such a mood, for wars are always lost, and the war goes on. And I think that there you see Tolkien expressing such disdain for war and Mm -hmm. bringing us back to these themes of the horrors of war. Right. And I think he understands that like aggression is not the path to peace. And, and that, that theme carries so far forward in the Lord of the Rings. So I think you can see how, how Tolkien really opened up to his son about a lot of his feelings. Interesting. Yeah. And again, it's, it's while the writing of the books is not necessarily his therapy he's bringing his whole self into his writings mm. uh again and uh and and fleshing out this world and and uh, um showing how uh these different aspects actually play out in in imaginary situations that we can apply to our real world selves yeah so christopher comes home from the war eventually safe and sound 
He re-enrolls in Trinity College, and at some point he's invited to join the Inklings, which, you know, we've talked about before. That's that group that Tolkien had with C.S. Lewis and some other writers where they would read their works and discuss intellectual topics. Which is sort of a successor to the TCBS. Right. This was his professorial TCBS. Right, right. So Christopher gets invited to read from The Lord of the Rings, which he was noted as being a better reader of it than his father. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Well, Tolkien, you know, was known for being an indistinct speaker. So Mm. his son, it it probably wasn't too hard to do better. (laughs) Right. But Christopher was, was known for being just this intertwined person with his father's work but in the end he had he ends up in the inklings on his own right yeah that's interesting so uh doesn't he become uh, an academic in his own right he does he starts teaching lecturing about the english language at oxford's new college and following totally in his father's footsteps so it's it's not uh, it's not just because whenever we hear christopher referred to largely especially in in the in the media in the main mainstream media um it's always christopher as the uh, uh executor of the state and the guy who sort of like you know got a bunch of stuff made sure a bunch of stuff got published but the fact that he's an academic in his own right is is very interesting and it seems like almost like okay well here he is he's a professor of not, you know, English literature or French literature or something like that. He's a professor of Tolkien literature, right? He's a, mm. His subject matter expertise is in his father's work. Yeah, and I think that what I would describe him as more than just an executor is the keeper of his father's work. Mm-hmm. You know, he's nurturing it. He's sort of going through it in a loving manner. And that's why you see him succeed so well as the literary executor to Tolkien. right. And as Tolkien got older, he realized, you know, I'm getting up there. I might not finish the Silmarillion. I intend to. But if I happen to die before I finish the Silmarillion, Christopher, please compile it and publish it. Wow. Okay. That's pretty explicit. Yeah. No, he explicitly asked Christopher to do that. And Christopher did do that after Tolkien died in 1973. Right. Christopher became the literary executive of his father. So he's in charge of what gets released, what doesn't what happens with the works. And he went through all of his father's extensive and often contradictory writings, took great pains to make it consistent with the existing works, and he enlisted the helps of another fantasy author, Guy Gabriel Kay, to complete and publish The Silmarillion in 1977. At this point, he's out of explicit instructions from his father, right? So he decides, after much internal debate, to begin publishing more of his father's writings because he sees how much people love this world of Middle-earth. And, you know, the the thing got so popular after his father's death, especially. And so he edits this work called Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth, which is published in 1980, three years after the Silmarillion. Right. And after that, he begins to go through his father's writings even more and editorializing a ton and putting together bits of narratives and other little notes. He'll he'll say, oh, my father scrawled this on the side of a manuscript. Right. And he entitles it The History of Middle-Earth. It's a 12-volume, huge series that takes him years to, to compile, and eventually he creates a separate index for it that's the size of a novel itself. So this is what I was kind of going back to, like, you know, if Christopher hadn't done his own independent academic studies and become a scholar in his own right, to write a 12-volume novel of recovered 
writings of of some other source. It just helps that his it's his father. Like <laughs> th- that is that is an accomplishment of his own, right? He's not just on the coattails of his father. This is like unearthing, uh, you know, some you know some lost writings out of some tomb somewhere or something. Yeah, I think that. Christopher had two advantages as a scholar, which was one, he got to hear his father talk through this stuff. Right. From from knee high to a knee high to a hobbit in front of the fire at home, right? Right. And the other is he didn't have to ask anybody for access to it. He didn't have to go through channels <laughs> to get, you know, these buckets of writing. You're right. He, just he could just go into the library. Yeah, exactly. Right. But otherwise he's a scholar, you know, just like anyone else, like you said. Yeah. Amazing. So Christopher died on January 16th, 2020, after publishing a few more uh, compilations of his father's works in the early 2000s up to 2018, where he published his last one, The Fall of Gondolin. And without Christopher, we wouldn't have this large body of work. So I think that in this last podcast we're doing in this series, it's a really good time to sort of reflect on how much we owe this guy. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary that, you know, I mean, when we're looking back on Tolkien's life and, and the circumstances that kept him alive during a, a very brutal war, the fact that one of his four children became a academic and, and, and uh, uh, editor and writer in, in their own right, like all of that is really phenomenal uh, and extraordinary. And I, and I think we're, we're pretty lucky in a lot of ways. Yeah, Absolutely. So quick note, just quick deviation. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on this, but with the film rights and the book rights, there's when we're looking at rings of power, and and I think we've stated Mm. this before, but we can restate it here. Amazon Studios does not have the rights to the Silmarillion or any of these other things, these bigger ones that Christopher published on his own. They only have the rights to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which... If you haven't ever looked at the back of a Lord of the Rings book, there's a whole huge appendices in there. And I guess that's what Amazon is basing the Rings of Power on. Yeah, so they have The Hobbit too, and they also have... You have to remember that the Lord of the Rings has so many songs in it. Right. And the songs actually contain a ton of information about the First and Second Age. Interesting. I think I must have glossed over them when I read them as a kid. There is a whole thing, I think, in Rivendell, Bilbo has a whole song about Arendil and his journey out west. Fascinating. Okay. So so that's how they're able to pull a lot out of it. It's the appendices where it explicitly puts it into a history kind of tone. And you can mm-hmm. read that. It's not very many pages if you want to get a quick sense of the Second Age. But also these songs that a bunch of the characters like Aragorn and Bilbo are singing. And you had mentioned, uh, I think you had mentioned a moment ago, too, that uh, Tolkien wasn't necessarily a fan of film adaptations or selling off the rights. But Tolkien, so Christopher wasn't a fan of that, but Tolkien himself had already sold the rights. Yeah, he sold the film rights to The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit earlier in his career. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't totally opposed to film adaptations at first. I think later he had a little bit of regret about that. But his son, knowing that his father had that kind of mixed feeling about it, he just totally opposed all film adaptations. So anytime they said, can we do this? No, 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 no. Interesting. And so that's part of the reason why we've, we've been so long without any film adaptation. Yeah, that's right. So we had, yeah. you know, they, they didn't have a choice with The Lord of the Rings because so they didn't own that film, right? But 
the the Silmarillion and things in the first and second age. That's why it's been so tough to get anything made out of that. Right. So it'll be interesting to see what Amazon Studio uh, Studios do with just that limited amount. I, and I guess they had permission to go and ask the Tolkien estate, which has all now been passed down to the the grandchildren of Tolkien. I yeah, believe. so uh, there may be a hint that they're a little bit more flexible, but they, it just hasn't been happening long enough to, to know. Right, right. We're just going to have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. All right, so let's talk a couple uh, moments, take a couple minutes here and talk about these literary themes. I like of that. Div- divine intervention and free will. That's kind of an interesting pairing there that we have. Yeah, so we saw some pretty explicit divine intervention through this whole series, right? Yeah. We had the sinking of Numenor. Uh, We have, you know, Sauron himself is sort of a divine entity. And I think that what you have to take away from that is that by the time the Third Age rolls around, the Valar are kind of nervous to get involved because they, they're like, we really messed things up with the elves at first, and then we really messed things up with the men. Oh, my God, did we mess up the men. We had to go call the big guy upstairs to solve that problem. So much so that they, the big guy just sink a whole island. He literally yeeted the Valar off, <laughs> the, off of the planet so that they couldn't right. get reached anymore. Right. So... They're a little nervous. <laughs> right, to say the least. And rightfully so. So they see that Sauron is still potentially a threat in Middle-earth, even after he's defeated at the end of the Second Age. So they say, we'll take a half measure, and we're going to send some help. Some light help. And we'll talk about that in a minute. That's going to be the wizards, like Gandalf and Saruman, but we'll talk about that in this next segment. Yeah, yeah, put a, put a pin in that, right? Yeah, because we're uh, sort of at the tail end of the aftermath of, of in the, on the deep dive. We're going to definitely talk about the, these wizard folk. Right. So we have that divine intervention. And the opposite of that sort of, or I guess the pairing with that, is free will. And that's because mm-hmm. the Valar now nervous about divine intervention are like, maybe we should let these men and elves kind of do their own thing for a little bit, you know? Right, let them work it out on their own. Right, you know, the rings are part of middle earth maybe that's their problem but we feel a little bit responsible because sauron's one of us so there's that little bit of half measure where they're trying to balance divine intervention with free will without like overcoming the will of men like they tried to do with the elves sort of at the beginning of the first age interesting okay and we see i guess some of that play out at least in the lord of the rings uh with how much um, I mean, they, we don't really see divine intervention there. We just see, you know, it, it's up to individual actors to, uh, you know, uh, uh, take on the quest and, and to fulfill their, their fellowship. We do and we don't. There is uh, some suggestion at some point that the finding of the ring by Bilbo may have been big guy divine intervention, like Eruvatar oh. divine intervention. But that's up for speculation. There's some hints to it in the book. Okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, read The Lord of the Rings if you want to go deeper into that. It's very good. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Okay, cool. So let's take a break. And when we come back, let's do a deep dive into the aftermath of the war.
Okay, and we're back. And we are now going to talk about the aftermath of the war. And I'm just going to preface here. This is some deep material, and it's a, it's a lot of stuff. So you've got uh, quite a bit of, of a lecture <laughs> prepared for us here. <laughs> so we're going to do the best we can to make it light and keep it moving. Um, but I think this is going to be a lot of good context, too, for the Amazon show, um, because there's a lot of... of uh, of how th- where things went to and then and then coming out of um, that uh, is going to be a lot of fodder for dramatic um, uh, adaptation. Yeah, and another cool thing here is that you've been with us through this whole journey. If you're still here now, Ooh. and yeah. we've we've gone through thousands of years of history, but here is where we tie it back to the Lord of the Rings, and here is where mm-hmm. we show you why that's relevant in the actual trilogy. Nice, yeah. So we're in the Third Age. Okay. We've done it. We've completed the second age. <laughs> the podcast is over. And now we have the third age. We begin with our big bad, Sauron. So that so just to mark here, when does the second age and the third age, when do they transition? When Isildur cuts the ring from Sauron's hand and everything is done with the War of Sauron, that is the beginning of the third age. Got it. Okay. So technically we're in the third age now. Okay. Right. All right, let's go. So Sauron's beaten, but not totally gone. His spirit sort of survived this. It's weak, uh, but it goes to Dol Guldur, which is... Dol Guldur. It's a lot of... But it's the fortress in Mirkwood Forest that you've seen Mm -hmm. if you watch the Hobbit movies. They go there a lot. Okay. And that's he becomes known as the Necromancer, and people Uh. aren't totally aware that that is Sauron. Uh, could uh-huh. just be this evil wizard, but for a while, he's just quiet there. Okay. You know, there's a lot less violence upon the borders of Gondor, uh, but they set a guard there because, you know, you can't have Sauron's armies going west, even if Sauron's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the men who fought for Sauron, because remember, we had some men from the east and the south, colonialism, we talked about it, uh, fighting for Sauron. <laughs> some of them went over to uh, the... Gondor side, some of them just stayed in the east and south and had a little fear of the west and hatred of the west. Right. And just did their but they just did their own thing down there. Right. Okay. So now we have to talk about Isildur and the realms of men and what happens there. And this is how we're going to get from Isildur to Aragorn. So if you if it feels dense at any point, remember we have an endpoint. Right. Just keep focusing there. Okay, so Isildur is now the bearer of the One Ring. Mm-hmm. He wanted to keep it as a remembrance of his fallen brother and father. And so when Elrond says, hey, buddy, um, that's a really dangerous little tool, and I don't think you should be playing with it. He says, no, nah, you know what? I fought this whole war. My dad died. My brother died. And I'm keeping this. This is mine now. So the scene in the Jackson movie, that was really like a... a- Distillation, but also a creative license moment, right? When they're standing in the in, in Mount Doom, and uh, and uh, Elrond is encouraging him to throw it in. Yeah, that didn't really happen with that like smug smile of Isildur. Right. No, <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, but that was a dra- drama, a, a synthesis and drama- dramatization of that. Yeah, I'll allow it, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm I'm sure I have to because it's a 20 year old movie. But <laughs> You're right. Yeah, so that didn't really happen, but that's okay. The same vibe. Elrond okay. said, please get rid of it. Uh, Isildur says, nah, I'm good. 
but Isildur, remember, is a good dude. He fought this big war against Sauron. He's not a bad guy. So he, remember, saved the white tree, uh, saved the uh, right. sapling of it, and he replants it in Minas Anor, which was his brother's city, in, member, in memory of his brother Anarion. Right, and we know that city as... Minas Tirith. So that's later it becomes Minas Tirith. And, and remember, follow the trees. The white tree mm-hmm. is a symbol of faith, and that's going to protect the city. Right. Okay. So Isildur eventually decides to forsake the southern kingdom of Gondor and return to his father's throne in Arnor, which is the realm in Eriador, you know, where the Shire is. Uh, and because he doesn't want to be near Mordor, he feels like, you know, that's, that's where all the trauma that I went through happened. I don't want to be near there. Okay. So he leaves Anarion's son in charge of Gondor, and he goes to head to Eriador so he can rule there. So on this journey, we have that scene that we see in The Lord of the Rings, where Isildur doesn't set a guard, he's getting a little cocky, and uh, his company is killed, including his three oldest sons, by a group of orcs. Now in the movie, the dramatization is he gets killed and he falls in the river and he's dead, but it's a little bit more complex in the books. It's it's about the same. It's he he puts on the ring. He becomes invisible. He jumps into the water to try to swim away. But as he jumps into the water, um, the orcs see him become visible because the ring betrays him and falls off his finger. Oh, interesting. Because remember, okay. the ring can change shapes, can can uh, become bigger <laughs> and smaller. And it was like, eh, what am, what am I going to do with this guy? So the ring right. betrays him. Whoop. Mm-hmm. And that's how it becomes lost until found by Gollum. And it's something interesting that you were just saying, too, is, is as they were passing through, they were passing it through where the Shire is. And that's uh, conceivably where, uh, what was Gollum's uh, hobbit name? Uh, Smeagol. Smeagol found it because that was their area, right? So he was passing through that area. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Gollum's people were settled by that river. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. More dots connecting here. Cool. Yeah. So remember, I told you, there's going to be payoff here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, already there. Uh, so someone later retrieves the shards of Narsil, you know, the sword that was shattered. Um, right. And it's given to Valandil, which is Isildur's son, his youngest son, who survives because he was sent to Rivendell with his mother. Uh, okay, so he, he was safe the whole time. Right. Isildur's wife and youngest son were sent to Rivendell with Elrond, and so they survive. Okay. That's why we get Aragorn later, because his land was preserved. I see. So Elrond takes the sword and stores it away and says, you know, this ring, this sword will only be reforged if the ruling ring is found and if Sauron returns. And let's hope that's never. Hmm. Got it. So Valandil, again, Isildur's son, he attempted to continue to rule the Northern Kingdom for a while. But after the war, there just weren't enough soldiers, basically. They couldn't hold all these places. Hmm. And so the Dúnedain of the north became divided into smaller realms, and eventually they're just their realms are just destroyed by enemies one by one because they're not united. Sort of ground down, right? Yeah, too far, too too spread out, too thin. Right, and so that's why the Dúnedain become scattered, and they become wanderers in the wild, and they begin uh, being known as the Rangers. Our Rangers, yes, Strider. I like right. how I like how Samwise in the movies. Yeah, Strider. yeah, yeah. It's that's totally stuck in my head. It's a total earworm thing there. Hey, Strider, Strider. <laughs> so meanwhile, down in Gondor, yes, in Gondor, where they have a tree. They got the tree. It's all about the trees. Uh, the kings are flourishing there. They wear a winged crown. They have a, a nice kingdom. They're guarding against 
the border against Mordor. Anarion's line continues to rule for a long time, and but eventually, the forts on the borders of Mordor are abandoned, and Minas Ithil, which remember was Isildur's city, it's emptied and it's turned into Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery. This becomes the base of Sauron's remaining forces against Minas Anor. Okay. Is Minas Morgul where the eye is? No, that's in Barad-dûr. That's that tower okay. in Mordor. So Minas Anor becomes Minas Tirith, the Tower of Guard, because it's guarding against Minas Morgul and the rest of Mordor. And it becomes this protector of all the lands to the west. And so people to the west of Gondor don't even need to worry about these places. Uh, they don't even need to worry about Mordor because the, the Gondorians... You know, in a way, th- that's like the the wall from uh, from Martin, from uh, yeah. uh, from the... Uh, what is that other series called? That little one, you know? I don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you're bankrupt. That's right. I forgot you're bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, it's just this Tolkien soup, you know? Like, again, like as we talked about in a previous chapter where the our, our baseline fantasy, there's just all these elements that are already plugged in. Yeah, exactly. I think... I could talk all day about how George R. R. Martin likes to talk smack about <laughs> Tolkien, but totally ripped off like half of his ideas. <laughs> all right. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Okay. Well, tune in for my hate watch of Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Send in your feedback to uh, to uh, Second Age at, at Ball Move so that we can talk about this. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. So the last king of Gondor. He rides alone to the gates of Minas Morgul because he wants to get rid of this guy in Minas Morgul. He wants to turn it back to Minas Ithil, and he challenges the Morgul Lord to single combat. Uh, But he's betrayed by the Nazgul, and he's taken prisoner and never seen again. Oh, Minas Morgul is the place where the Nazgul come out of. Okay, now it's clicked in my head. Right, like the Morgul blade that they talk about and and when Frodo stabbed. It's that weird green city thing, yeah. You want payoff, you got it. (laughs) <laughs> cha-ching i am not bankrupt <laughs> not in any way not in this one nope all right so the last king of gondor left no heir so he left the steward of his house uh which is another one of the faithful he's a numenorian line he left the, the the steward to rule in his stead right and the stewards get all of the rights and powers of the king while he's gone so that means it becomes an inherited title mm-hmm Whereas it wasn't before that, you know, this was just a job. You you know, you help the king out with some of his tasks. You, you take care right. of business while he's gone. That was the job of a steward, but it could be anybody. But because this hand one guy, king. yeah, <clears throat> hand of the king, <clears throat> right? So he's the hand of the king, basically, and he, and because the king never came back, this becomes the kingship, basically. Permanent. Right. It becomes an inheritable title, and that's why you have Denethor and Baromir having this chain of succession by the time Aragorn comes around. And that's and why they're, they're so threatened hostile. by him. Yeah, exactly. They're very hostile because they're going to lose their power and their position. All right, so that makes sense. Okay, again, more cha-ching. I'm, I'm, uh, my pockets are getting full here. <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's not just that they become stewards when Aragorn takes back control. It's that... They're nobodies now. They're just regular Gondor right. citizens. Right. Uh, they Anybody could be steward once a king has returned. Okay. So also, just a quick note here, the Rohirrim, you know, Rohan, they settle yep. part of what was in Gondor, but Gondor couldn't really hold because they were getting smaller. And uh, so they, they settle in there at some point in the Third Age. Uh, Elrond keeps the line of Isildur and Rivendell, knowing that someday 
someone great would come from that line. Right. So he's uh, he's bank- he's not bankrupt. He's he's uh, banking on the future here and uh, keeping faith alive. He knows what he's doing. Right. And we're going to see some of how we're we're expecting that we're going to see Elrond go from a young quote unquote young elf to an old elf. Right. So we're yeah. going to see this maturation and development of him uh, into this wise and wily uh, leader. Yeah, you know, Elrond was sort of forced into leadership when Eregion fell. Mm-hmm. And he had to get these refugees over to where it became Rivendell. So that's right. how he becomes sort of the, the big wise guy that you see in The Lord of the Rings. And so I, I'm looking forward to seeing that transition in the show. Yeah, I, I hope so. That, that'll be some cool payoff if we, if mm-hmm. we get that uh, done really well. Yeah. So speaking of elves. Yes. We've got, remember, three main centers of elvish populations, at least right. Noldor and Sindar populations. Right. We have Linden on the coast, Grey Havens. We have Rivendell, Elrond City, and we have Lothlorien in the forest with Galadriel. Galadriel, at some point during the Third Age, does take over Lothlorien um, after the Sindarin king uh, goes away. Okay. And we're going to see uh, Galadriel as well a lot in this uh, series. We we're are. expecting to. We are. I don't yeah. know how ruling she will be because canonically she begins ruling Lothlorien in the Third Age. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they'll retcon that and change it just to have her be a leader in the show. But it seems like she's adventuring a lot. So she might be wandering more. Okay. Right. And now to to keep these three elven enclaves safe they're actually using their rings because the one ring is not possessed by sauron so they can safely use their rings right exactly and okay the issue is hey wow i've learned something over this podcast <laughs> my gosh and so they understand that if sauron does come back you got two options there either sauron wins and they can't use the rings anymore or Sauron loses and the ring is destroyed and they have to leave anyway because they, they don't think that the rings will still work after the one ring is destroyed. So Elrond's got to be freaked out at that council when, when they bring up that one ring. Yeah, he, well, that's why they're leaving Oof. afterwards, you know? He's like, well, yeah. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Cool. All right. That's a, that's a pretty cool uh, to wrap that around. We have, I think, one more topic to one more segment. One, one more little thing, which is interesting. It could potentially be problematic from the show, but uh, <laughs> lay us down some lore about the Istari. So the Istari are what we know as the wizards in this mm-hmm. universe. They're not really wizards. They're, they're demigods. They're Maiar. They're, and they're, they're flesh and blood beings. They are. So they're... They're sent by the Valar because, remember we talked about, they, the Valar had become a little bit nervous about directly intervening with things in Middle-earth. So instead, they send five Maiar, named the Istari, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go to Middle-earth. And they send them in real bodies, like men bodies. Mm-hmm. They're able to be hungry, they can be thirsty, they can be slain, and they can be turned to evil just like men can. They're, they're sort of weaker than normal Maiar are. So and this is like this is like a, a half measure of of uh, free will and divine intervention sort right. of mixed into this like single entity, right? So their spirits make them immune to natural death, so they're not going to die of old age, but they can be killed. Okay. But what they're told to do is 
not to directly attack Sauron, but instead to sort of nudge people of Middle-earth to be good, to mm. take Sauron down, and to have world peace. That's really their goal, is to is sort of to ignite this passion of the people in Middle-earth and, and get them to work together against Sauron. If only they had Instagram accounts. I know. They could have been influencers. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but alas. Alas. All right. So there's five Astari, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start with the ones that nobody really knows a lot about, and that's the Blue Wizards. Mm. And they're named Alatar and Palando. We may or may not see them in the series because they may have come in the Second Age, according to some writings. In other writings, they came in the Third Age with the other Astari. But they're known as the Blue Wizards. They probably went into the East or the South they may have, according to some speculation, created secret cults and magic traditions that outlasted the fall of Sauron. So they're really mysterious figures, and we don't know a lot about them, but they could do a ton of interesting stuff in the show with it, and I hope they do. Are they referenced, are the Blue Wizards referenced in the Lord of the Rings uh, appendices and songs? <sighs> I think that they are. Uh, that that's Gandalf says at some point there were five of my order. I don't think that they're okay. called out by name. Okay, so we're not sure if the showrunners can uh, access the Blue Wizards or not. They could have. They might have had to ask for permission. Yeah, I think. Well, there's not a lot of details anyway in the in the extended writings, so okay. they really could make up a lot of it, and I would wow. be fine with that. Okay. Right into secondagebaldmo.com. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we should. We we can. We could point out that probably of uh, of the uh, of several of the uh, hot take points on the internet, I think the Blue Wizards is is one of these things. Are, will they? Won't they? Kind of uh, question. Hot takes. You heard them here. Hot takes. Hot takes at paulmove.com. <laughs> Don't send anything to that address. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So we also have Saruman. Everybody knows him. He's not a great dude right. by the time we see him in Lord of the Rings, but he was the wisest of all of the Istari. He's attached to the smithing Valar, Aule, because remember, all of the Maiar are attached to one of the Valar. Okay. So guess who else was attached to Aule was Sauron. <laughs> mm, so he's got a kind of a vibe with Saruman, so easy, e easier to... Bend his will, maybe? I think that it's more that they're the same personality type, almost. You know, this oh, this sort of okay. crafty uh, person, because they're attached to the smithing vala. He eventually becomes so obsessed with power that he's turned away from his task of helping elves and men. Right, so he's supposed to be helping people, but, right, he's but he gets uh, power hungry. Right, so that's why he establishes his hold in Isengard. He sort of becomes mm. one with his man body rather than being one of the Maiar and helping. Interesting. Okay. Okay, so next we have Radagast, who you may have seen in The Hobbit if you've suffered through those as I have. <laughs> Radagast the brown. And I think Sourman was the white, right? Yes, yeah, Saruman's the white. Right. And and originally Gandalf, which we're going to talk about in a, in a moment, was the gray. Right. And then he's eventually sent back as the white. Right. So we have Saruman, and then we have Radagast. Radagast is attached to the Vala. Uh, Yavanna, the Vala of Fruit and Growth, so big nature theme. And so he becomes obsessed with all of the beasts of Middle-earth, and so he gets distracted also from the <laughs> task of helping elves and men, so he pretty much fails, too, for a more benevolent reason. Right, he's just, yeah, he's he's just rolling around in the forest having fun. 
Right. He's like, oh, I'm worried about the squirrels. And the Valar are like, hey, we sent you to deal with like a big demon guy. <laughs> so the really the only one who does their job is Gandalf. I think Gandalf is a good closer to this series. Mm. Gandalf was sent by Manwe, the king of the Valar. So okay. he was the big deal. Uh, but he's not put in charge. Instead, Saruman is put in charge of this order. And Gandalf comes to the Grey Havens when he first gets to Middle-earth, as they all did. And Círdan perceives him to be the wisest of the wizards, and so he gives him Narya, the Ring of Fire. Interesting, right. So he's giving up his... Círdan's giving up his ability to protect his enclave by... But he's placing the long bet, hoping that uh, Gandalf can uh, make some systemic change. Right, and Gandalf does this, you know, he uses the ring to kindle fire in the hearts of people of Middle-earth, looking at you, Bilbo, looking at you, Frodo, and mm-hmm. look even Theoden, look at how he sort of revives his spirit when he's right. under the control of Saruman. He's the only Astari who's successful. Good, glad he was. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yes, very much. Cool. So that's also why it was a big deal that he was sent back, is that they are ah, mortal bodies. Yeah. Right. So he needed the Valar to have some divine intervention for him and send him back if they were going to have him around anymore. Right, right. Because, yeah, he, he went to the uh, he went down with that uh, Balrog and then he uh, he says I was sent back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Cool. And so there is some speculation um, at the time that we're recording this. We haven't had the trailer yet. We're hoping that it's going to be coming soon. But we've had the teaser and in the teaser, we see a meteorite streaking across the sky, and we see a hand of an old, uh, what looks to be an older man. So there's a lot of um, uh, speculation about, is this one of the Astari? If it's Gandalf, I will riot. Hot takes. <laughs> right. So we'll see where we go with that. We've got five full seasons of material to cover. Um, and I think that pretty much wraps it up for the aftermath. Anything else that you want to add? I think that's it. But thanks for everyone for joining us for all this. It's been a fun journey and I hope you'll participate in the feedback and I hope you'll join us for our lore cast during the season. Yeah, for reals, um, the final chapter of this particular podcast, the second age, um, you can send your feedback into secondage at baldmove.com. We'll collect all that information as this is running, and we'll compile all that. And then hopefully we'll have one of the uh, Bald Move guys, Jim or Aaron, or both on with us. And uh, we'll go through all your feedback. And that'll be the last episode of that. We'll drop just the week prior to the Amazon Rings of Power show starting. And then from right there, Bald Move will pick up with their full episode coverage. Right. And so you'll, you can expect full coverage from Bald Move. You can also expect a weekly lore cast from us where we dive a little deeper into some of the themes that we see in the episode. Yeah, we can take apart a little bit some of the uh, compare and contrast the, the Tolkien literature to uh, what um, Amazon is putting down. Right. Okay, cool. Well, John, uh, this has been great. Uh, Really fun. Thank you for all the hard work that you've done on this. And um, I look forward to talking with you more on the feedback and in the lore episodes. It's been a pleasure talking to you, David. The Second Age Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. 
Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.